Standard Issue for all women. Hello, welcome to episode 21 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm thinking of writing an adult pantomime. I'm going to call it Jack off the Beanstalk. That's that's as far as I've got. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy. I'm desperate to name drop something. I'm Jen Offord and I once made a pottery trinket jar fashioned on Dusty Bin despite not really knowing who or what Dusty Bin was. I met Dusty Bin once. True story. I really want to ask what you wanted <clears throat> to name drop. Is it Armando Iannucci? I, I had a conversation about the death of satire with Armando Iannucci Are you all right? this week, and it was quite exciting. I told my mum, and she said, that's great, darling, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, Fiona Longwear explains why you're never too old to believe in magic. We had a chat with Jen Brister and Maureen Younger about Outlander and their podcast, Droughtlander. Our Sarah is answering another vital life question. And I do Disney's Peter Pan. But first... Food banks, fuckery and love at first sight. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we stare wide-eyed at the news like a copper going through Damien Green's browsing history. Quirky, you don't get many of them to the pens. <laughs> Just when you were getting excited about the prospect of signing 50 billion quid away to the European Union in a divorce that almost half the people who voted don't even want, bloody Brussels started throwing its bloody weight around again last week. Speaking about the deal, and I'm going to say deal in inverted commas, agreed in principle between the UK government and its European counterpart, President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, warned that any deal made must also be acceptable to the Republic of Ireland, who, some would argue, have been royally fucked over by the whole debacle, which now even threatens to undermine the Good Friday peace agreement. Before you take to the streets in your Union Jacks demanding Britain should be Britain and steaks should be crispy once more, it emerges even hardline leavers are sceptical about the deal. It was reported last week that Prime Minister Teabag's plan could yet come undone thanks to a group of her own Eurosceptic MPs. Apparently, the PM has been told in no uncertain terms that the deal could be voted down because... The will of the people does not extend to handing over a huge sum of cash and not getting a good trade deal out of it. It's almost as if this should have been obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It would, however, indicate that some things do still need spelling out. So, just in case those at the back didn't catch it a couple of hundred years ago, slavery is bad, guys. Libya, uh, is that your hand up? How bad? It's abhorrently inhumanly bad. Human trafficking takes place the world over. We know that. Now that underworld is brazenly coming to the surface, with CNN releasing footage of slave markets in Libya. Sub-Saharan asylum seekers trying to pass through Libya on their way to Europe are being captured and auctioned as slaves. What the fuck? The UN has announced an ongoing investigation, but if you want to do something, write to your MP, sign the petition that's doing the rounds. Let's get them talking about this in Parliament. There's also a national anti-slavery march being held in London on Saturday the 9th of December, meeting at Belgrave Square at noon and heading to the Libyan embassy. Well, it's been all go in the US. Um, And before I even get into what I was originally going to say, there has been a tax bill passed, which I have not had time to look at. We are recording this on Sunday. I haven't really had time to look at the repercussions of it. I have had more time to look at it than the people who voted on it, who got (laughs) two hours to look at it. There are some quite staggering implications. Nothing bad for women, though, right? Uh, Well, no. I mean, women who own their own private jets, maybe, because then they can just fly to another country to get an abortion. There are some troubling things I've read about the implications of something 
that Ted Cruz has done that might have implications on Roe v. Wade, which is the Abortion Act in America. I probably talk about that more next week because, like I say, I haven't really had time. And also because the country's descent into self-imposed moral turpitude really had a rocket strapped to it by its arsewipe of a president this week, a rocket labelled Britain first. Not content with messing around with race relations in his own country and international cooperation as a whole, Donald J. Fuck Trumpet retweeted a load of old tosh from the far-right hate group Britain First, which no doubt appeared in his timeline because one of his alt-right mates liked it that's right folks a social media algorithm is currently (laughs) running america among those expressing their well-deserved outrage were brendan cox widower of joe cox the mp murdered by a man shouting britain first and piers morgan who clearly does have a line in the sand it just happens to be half a tossing mile out to sea (laughs) long-time non-twats david lammy and chuka ramuna were among those calling for Trump's UK visit to be halted, allowing Theresa May to show the sort of leadership she has become known for by not cancelling it. Come on now, it must be tough for May though. What with her and President Shitwizzle being such good hand-holding pals and everything, so close, such good friends. Oh, uh, apart from when he tweeted the wrong Theresa May. Our thoughts and prayers to Theresa Scribner, a.k.a. at Theresa May, no underscores. <laughs> Let's talk about another of May's former, inverted commas, mates. George, chop her up and put her in bags in my freezer, Osborne. The austerity chancellor turned editor of the Evening Standard demonstrated all the self-awareness of a cardboard box in the editorial launching his paper's Christmas fundraising campaign, Help a Hungry Child. Ha! (laughs) Around 70,000 kids go to school hungry in London alone. A fifth of families in the capital have to choose between heat and food. That so many children are half-starving is, Georgie Boy notes, dispiriting. No shit, fucko. And who had a massive hand in making these kids hungry? Borrow one of your mate's silver spoons and take a look in the back of it, you prick. Osborne's monstrous hypocrisy aside, the cause itself is a vital one. Food bank use across the UK is at a record high. According to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, by 2020, 36% of children in Britain will have fallen below the official poverty line, more than since records began. Here's a lovely idea I saw on the internet. A reverse advent calendar. Every day, buy a tin, packet, whatever of food, and put it in a box. On Christmas Eve, take that box to your local food bank. Return home, pin a photo of George Osborne to your dartboard, and let the arrows fly. The thing about this that's particularly interesting is, of course, that um, George Osborne was the Chancellor of this checker. I mean, not even... Before we even talk about, like, austerity measures and things like that, let's talk about how they changed the child poverty target to make it look like less children lived in poverty. But anyway, there you go. Uh, I think what Jen was adding to that was the phrase, what a cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, words to that effect. Yeah. In other news from the US, maybe even more depressing than the first, came an extraordinary Washington Post story. It claimed a woman had approached the newspaper with false allegations about Alabama's favourite alleged deviant, Roy Moore. The approach appears to have been part of an undercover sting by the right-wing organisation Project Veritas, designed to discredit the Post story about other allegations against Republican Senate hopeful Moore, the women who made them, and, potentially, every woman who has spoken out about abuse in the last months. Yes, indeed, that is the world that we are living in, where some people are so desperate to keep their taxes and their women down that they are fighting to ensure a potential sex offender makes it into their government. I'm genuinely 
at a loss as to what to say about this, short of, fuck this fucking fuckery, you fucking fuck sticks. Go fuck your fucking selves into fucking oblivion. That's very well said, Hannah. Do you want some good news? Yes, please. Well, it's mostly good news for the makers of novelty biscuit tins. They're my favourite yeah. makers of things. Yeah, and indeed for governments looking to distract their voters from the handing over of enormous sums of cash for no fucking good reason. This week, Prince Harry announced his engagement to American actress Meghan Markle, who said in the couple's first interview together he had known the extremely attractive suit star was the one from the very first time they met. But to all the romantics out there, don't get too excited because psychologists from the University of Groningen? Groningen? I don't know. I think you get to it through a wardrobe. Yeah. Groningen? Groningen. Anyway, them. They reckon there's no such thing as love at first sight. No, you shut up. In a study of 369 people, approximately 60% of whom were women, participants were asked about what had initially drawn them to their current partners, after which they were shown pictures of strangers and asked to rate their attraction to them, noting feelings of love, intimacy, passion, commitment and um, eros, which I thought was a nightclub in Barnet, but is apparently just uh, fuck chemistry. Anyway, after further studies, including speed dating, because that sounds scientific to me, (laughs) 32 participants, most of whom were men, described 49 experiences of love at first sight. That made me quite sad, actually, because that means like a considerable number of these 32 people had several experiences of love at first sight. However, the studies concluded these instances were... Sharp, strongly links to the participant finding the other person physically attractive. No shit. Yeah, I mean, who who would have thought it? Old Hazard might want to have a little chat with Megan about his bold claims because also, sadly, none of those instances of love at first sight that were reported were mutual. Sad face. Yeah. Hannah. So I believe he does romance. Yeah. I'm no, excited. it's not. No, oh. I don't do romance. Good, good um, I used to work at, as a reporter on a local newspaper. I was wondering often, where that was going, <laughs> to be honest. Quite <laughs> often. I've been watching the juice. <laughs> quite often when you're, when you're a young reporter, you get sent out a lot to do a lot of the puff stuff. And a lot of the puff stuff is couples who've been married 60, 70 years. And you have to ask them the same questions because you always do. One of the questions you, you generally ask them is like how you make a marriage work for 70 years. And they usually say something like, don't get a bed on an argument or give and take. Uh, somebody once said lots of sex and caravanning, which was the best answer <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> and then Alice Lowe made a film about it as well. Yeah. Our sightseeing is amazing. But men almost always, always, always say that they knew that was going to be the person that they married the they first time they met her. I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly that particularly men of a certain age rather than sort of like we're not talking about teenage boys I think they have a tendency to look back and sentimentalise stuff and say oh I knew they might have thought I'm going to marry her five six times about different women on the same night so therefore they will always think I've heard men say that so many times always old men I knew I was going to marry her the first time and the woman always says oh no it took a while for him to grab on me I didn't really like him very much to start off with to be honest it was a slow burn it was a slow burn um, I did see some some fant- I saw a fantastic tweet this week. I don't know who it was from that said someone's nan had just rung them to say that Prince Harry was getting married to Angela Merkel. <laughs> oh, 
I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about taxpayers funding the royal wedding, but I, I think we should fund that one. Yeah, I've paid to see that. That would be amazing. Incidentally, I saw a bit of Strictly, my first bit of Strictly this year. I was at my mum's house and uh, I was happy to watch it because Susan Cameron was on it. Although, sadly, she left <laughs> that week. And when they were going to the judging bit, I said to my mum, who's that that's not Len Goodman? And she said, oh, she's a really good dancer. She's called... Um, Shandy Bass. <laughs> my brother and I laughed at it for about an hour. Does she go in a blue tin? And you feel like you're drinking yeah. when really you're not. We recently decided we'd try to end the Bush Telegraph with a new story about women that is uplifting. Um, Got to be honest with you, week one and we are struggling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, birds. Where From are the, the brownies putting their hands in the air? Yeah, seriously. But just to show that there is some love for loveliness out there, the most recent John Lewis Christmas advert has led to more than extra wedge in Guy Garvey's pants drawer. Kids being scared of a monster under the bed is a tale as old as beds. But there was no dismissing John Lewis's vision of Mars the Big Blue unthreatening hairy monster's similarity to Mr. Underbed. Uh, the Big Blue unthreatening hairy monster in Chris Riddle's 1986 picture book of the same name. John Lewis was all, uh, like, no way, it's well different, shop. Joe and Jane Public, however, have clearly seen a likeness, as every single printed copy of Mr Underbed in the UK has sold out. A commercial tale we can all get behind. More news next week. More news as it's vomited from the mouth of (laughs) Satan. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we get a job a woman could do and we offer it to a man who believes that a woman could do it just as well if anybody bloody well asked her. Forbes magazine thinks that what the Golden Globes needs right now is a feminist host. Yes, Forbes! Damn right! The time has never been writer for a feminist to be seen front and foremost of one of Hollywood's biggest, glitziest industry bashes. What with all the rampant sexism and misogyny and harassment that we already knew about, being joined by some seriously rank and seedy underbelly shit. Yes, yes and yes. Who are we thinking? Samantha B, Leslie Jones? Amy Poehler. Sorry, sorry, what now? Sorry, sorry, Forbes magazine? Did you say, said some... Seth Meyers? The man, Seth Adam Meyers? Because, because what? I'm sorry, this line is very fuzzy. He's the... Feminist hero we all need during this year's award season. Yep. Oh, granted, he's certainly my go-to feminist, but I didn't realise his powerful brand of feminism had reached others. I mean, his 12-strong writing team contains three women. Let's crown him fucking queen. And, you know, until there are some feminist women out there, he is, as Forbes continues, the man for the job. That piece was written by a woman. Casey Purcell... What are you doing? Also see Angela Lansbury. Hello, we are joined by Maureen Younger and Jen Brister, who are the founders and producers and writers of the Droughtlander podcast. Yay, that's us. Mick, that made us sound so professional. <laughs> I've never had such a professional introduction in my life. You and can it, put it on your seat website. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it leads me to believe... You haven't heard the podcast. <laughs> because if and you, you wouldn't heard, be alone. <laughs> because if you'd heard the podcast, definitely wouldn't have got that intro. <laughs> but thank you, Mickey. But thank, thank you. you. I appreciate it. I met Jen and Maureen through LinkedIn, where they are incredibly, <laughs> incredibly professional. So Droughtlander is all about the absence of Outlander. But just for anyone who might yes. not know, including the three women in this room, <laughs> 
What is Outlander? Oh, uh, my. Maureen, so, over to you. It's basically a, a TV programme that I'm obsessed about. I've watched the first season over 40 times. Ooh, Good oh Lord. Which just goes to show you I'm slightly unhinged and I don't have a life. And I managed to persuade Jen to watch it. It's set in Scotland, which I, I'm Scottish, so that was like a big thing for me. It's got a very hunky hero. Hunky? What is it? It's 1985. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's That's like the last time I was dating. That's the yeah. last time I was dating was 1985. That's the first term we used. Very gorgeous guy who's a fantasy male. I mean, you know, he's, he's, very, ma- he's very manly and he's, all, he's very brave, but he's also very into... He's, he's a feminine side. Yeah. He's so sensitive. It's so sensitive. I mean, it's oh, hilarious. God. But, and, and it was great because Jen really wasn't that appreciative of the good-looking man and, uh, and of the story, but now you're actually really enjoying it. Yeah. And she's uh, really annoyed about it. <laughs> What's what is the story? Because it's I mean I, I do know, but I want one of you guys. Which I forgot to tell her because I was going. It's really I love it. It's so realistic and blah blah blah. I forgot to mention the time travel aspect. Yeah, I mean, like in the first episode, I was like, yeah, it's really realistic. They go back in time two hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> the naturalism in this series is intense. <laughs> And it's all narrated by David Attenborough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, re- it's real time. And, uh, but see, a woman goes back 200 years from 1945, Claire, and uh, she meets this hunky Scotsman, and then it's all about her trying to, first of all, trying to get back to the, to the future without a car. And, um, no DeLorean. <laughs> DeLorean. A mad scientist. And then she kind of falls in love with this Jamie character. But she's already married, guys. I know, but well, if you saw Jamie, you go. It's very complex. It. Right, so in prep for this, I watched my first episode oh, of Outlander oh, did you? last night. All right, Which season? Episode one. <laughs> episode one. I thought this? it was best to start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah probably. <laughs> you know, I, I can recommend episode four. No. <laughs> no. This is basically Good Night, Sweetheart. <laughs> no, it's much better than that. It is actually really well done. But what did you? What did you think, Mickey? Well, it was fucking bonkers. But I'm like. I did try to watch episode two, but my computer was having none of it. So the fact that I went, oh, I want to watch some more of this. And you're right, Jamie is, I think the only word for him is hunky. Is it Sam Hewen? Sam Hewen, he is. I mean, it's he is gorgeous. The, the reason why, and, and, and the people that are watching this show, it's mainly middle aged women. It's all women. It's all women of a certain age. More in no offense. But, but, um, <laughs> and, 38, 38. And, it's all, and the reason why is because the whole film is seen through the eyes of a woman. So it's all the. So when you're looking at him as the guy, the hunky guy, is that the right word? Yes, that's the word. It's through the female gaze. And so that's why women love it because they feel like. It's, it's very cleverly done. Can, can I ask a moderately, a moderately oh, personal I really question? Then. Yeah. yeah. Okay, which is um, what's in it for you, Jen? As a fully Lesbian? signed up very member of the little. <laughs> Very little apart from a friendship with Maury. <laughs> and can I say that I really struggled through. I mean, I got halfway through season two and I was like, I said to Maureen, I don't think I'm going to make it through this. <laughs> but I made her. But for the lesbians there, the, the, the lead woman is very hot and she goes camping a lot in the uh, She's, a, she's often, she's, yeah, she's often camping. Oh, hang on, rambling. I've heard about Jen and camping stories. <laughs> and, oh. No, that didn't sell it to Jen. No, that's not going to sell it. I did try to sell the show showing her a picture of Sam Hewen and she went, that's really not going to. That's really not going to work for me, was it? No. But the, what's great? The, the sex scenes are kind of more realistically done, and they're done from a woman's point of view, which I think that's. It's a lot of foreplay. A lot of foreplay, that's basically. I've got to say, what I saw in the episode last night was there's an intimation of sex when there's a, a creaky bed and a lad swinging. Yeah. But the first actual sex you see is Randall's going down on her. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of. There's a lot. A lot of that. She, lot she's watching public transport, but. Uh, I. She's now banned from Virgin Trains. <laughs> 
made because sometimes I have to catch up, and I'm not always like on it like Maureen is. So I download it onto my phone from Amazon or whatever, and I was watching it on my phone, and it was the most explicit sex scene that went on for about 15 minutes, and I realised no I one's sick. ever had sex for that long. Come on, I was, even I was like, come on, this is stretching it. No, as a gay woman, it goes on for days. But, um, <laughs> but I'm wondering, it does. Sometimes you're like, time out now. Time out. Um, the whole thing, I can't, yeah, like, yeah. I'm on a train and they're watching this explicit, and I just noticed that this bloke is just there like that, and leaning was, over my shoulder. She texted me to say, oh, I must note to self, never watched the end of episode nine on a train. I went, well, don't watch the beginning of episode ten. And she went, too late. Yeah, <laughs> that was the... When he goes down on That her. was the going down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, I saw someone tweet the other day, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen on a train? And I said, somebody having a wank. And now I'm thinking, maybe they'll sit next <laughs> I once watched um, Fifty Shades of Grey on a flight back from New York, sat between two men. That was a mistake. <laughs> that may have been a mistake. I thought mistake. you were hinting. Well, <laughs> guys, just guys to let you know, next to me started then watching it, <laughs> and, and the other guy next to me, who was like a, a middle-aged man with a ponytail and a cushion on his lap. <laughs> Started having a long chat with me afterwards. Uh, I bet you yeah, did. I, I think the reason why Jamie's fantasy male is very good looking, but the other thing is he loves Claire, so he will do anything for Claire. And I think in a day and age, you know, <laughs> where we're kind of you've got text, sexting and, you know, where you think you've got to keep if some guy, you know, texts you back and he's going to attach a picture of his cock, you know, you kind of go, oh my God, he's a keeper. <laughs> so I think, you know, so I think it's the fact that this Jamie will do anything for the woman he loves. And I think that's what women find really attractive. I don't think this is a spoiler, but there is a point, I think, in season two or it might even be in season three where the character of Jamie knows that Claire is pregnant and the reason why he knows she's pregnant is because he knows that she's missed her period and it's like during what? a war during a war I don't even know when I forget 200 years of time travel <laughs> that's the bit that I think is the most unrealistic you know she manages to go through back time through 200 years by going through a, 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 like a me- megalith and you know at one point I was thinking I might try that it might be worth a try because I can just, just imagine warring <laughs> up in Inverness rubbing herself up a stone <laughs> well let's not go into my hobby you can't, you can't swipe left on a megalith <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to go into the past, Your Honour. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 so season three, which is on now, which we're trying to podcast so we get up to date, it is a fantastic series. And Jen actually had to text me and go, I'm really annoyed because I'm really looking forward to it. I'm actually enjoying it now. So I'm, I'm livid. <laughs> but are you going to become straight, Jen? <laughs> I think I'll take more than I that. Think it's too I think that, that's, <laughs> that ship sailed. Yeah, that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, I think it's. I think also what's interesting is we've, we've been doing this podcast. I want to stress, we do not have a lot of listeners. <laughs> We don't. But what is weird is that the listeners we have, some of them don't, don't watch Outlander. Outlander. So I don't know what they're getting from it. Just it's hilarious. The two of us wittering on. on and on. And it's so funny because I got stopped in Edinburgh. I got, went to my first gig at the festival and this, these two women stopped me and went, oh, you're the woman from the podcast. Because we've got about 20 avid listeners. I was like, God, this is what this is a fluke. Yeah. And one of them doesn't even watch it. She goes, no, I don't watch Outlander. We've got quite a few people who don't, don't watch it. Outlander, but they just want to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Which is weird. Oh. That is weird. That's a compliment of sorts. A couple of people have said to me when I used to when I used to write for Standard Issue and I used to write weekly recaps of T V series. Yeah. They did say, I don't watch Line of Duty, but I do enjoy, enjoy your recaps. <laughs> like, I used to write like, uh, recaps of Line of yeah, Duty. I had, to, I had to edit them, but I yeah. really enjoyed them. And then I had to wait two years <laughs> so I could actually watch the series because I knew what was going to happen. Yeah, they're kind of riddled with spoilers. I was quite nervous about Maureen coming in today. Why? And I'm, I'm going to explain why. So Maureen wrote us a couple of pieces for Standard Issue oh, when we oh, were oh, the oh, online oh, magazine. Oh, no, and Maureen I and I had a big old chat on uh, on email. <laughs> oh, she's going to say it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it about the phrase. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. 
Making up. Make it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not arts and crafts, mate. I refused to, I refused to back down on that one, didn't I? It was, but you, I, I did make sure that I got the word nookie. In the <laughs> yes, you, you did. You weren't happy. And I'm like, mate, it's compromise. If I got read, <laughs> make it. Oh, God, it's so hard to say. <laughs> Luckily, I'm so easygoing. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought that about you, Maureen. So I, do, so I do our TV stuff. And I have to say, as a someone who's reviewed TV for 10 years, I do think that in recent years, things are getting better for women on television. Yes, I do. Categorically, way more women leads and stuff, way more women writing stuff, way more women actually having an accurate representation of what it is to be a woman. And also, when you look at things like Orange is the New Black, lots of naked bodies that aren't necessarily beautifully, beautiful bodies naked, old bodies you know, yeah, overweight no, bodies, etc. Et Does Outlander fall into that? Yes, camp? I think also because you know, with Claire, she is very proactive sexually. And normally, when a woman is proactive sexually in a, in a film or TV series, she's a bit of a slag or she's a bit of a psycho. She's just not a normal woman who has got a very healthy sexual life and sexual urge. Which, if you see Sam Hewitt naked, you kind of go, oh, "I can see your point there, love." Do you know what I mean? So she she often initiates the sex, but it's done in a way that's it's just normal. That's what women do. I think that's very unusual in a lot of TV programs. I mean, most of the characters are men in yeah. Outlander, but the characters that are women are not often feisty. Aren't they're they? not pushovers and they're not two dimensional. I think that'd be Claire's quite a complicated. Character. Yeah, she gets on my nerves. Fair she's bit. fit. <laughs> she's fit though as well. Though she's she's not. not she's definitely easy on the eyes, but yeah. but she's. She's got a lot of plans. She's, she's a woman so of plans. annoying that all of that. Oh, she's oh, you're annoying. I can't look at you anymore now. But you know, like his sister is a very feisty woman. So they're they're, they're quite interesting characters, I think. Yeah, no, the women are definitely. Well, it's written by a woman. The book, the, the, the it's the, the series is from a book. It's from a series of books, and it's that have and been I think written they, by they, a woman. The stars. I mean, it's one of the most successful series because I think people forget that you know they tend to ignore middle-aged women, but middle-aged women are the type of people who watch TV. We yeah. we sit down and watch television. You know, whereas. And we've kind of been ignored. So well, they've, they've got. Think, a, that's why it's so successful. I think, yeah, I reasons. think in America they know that because if Americans know anything, it's how to make money. Yeah, and so they've gone. <laughs> the biggest of, audience of the, the you know, the, you, you're absolutely right. The biggest demographic that are watching online and and box sets is um, are women, uh, yeah. and so. Outlander is a series that's dedicated to, dedicated to women, to that demographic. And we haven't caught up in this country. That's what we are so behind in television and, and in comedy, like the same with comedy. The amount of, the amount of times I, I, I sort of put in a script or I put in an idea or I put in a treatment and I got this feedback... No one's interested in uh, in thirty uh, something women. It's like really. <laughs> I think you find the people who watch TV are yeah, I and also the, the women in their thirties. Women, well, boys. women in their thirties, yeah. yeah. in their forties. Because also often when you see women of a certain age, they're either like the, the bitter ex-wife, the controlling mother, you know, the tart with the heart, and it's like you don't. Re- that's why I think Sex and the City was so popular because you saw, although your life, their lives were nothing like ours. You saw four women over the age of thirty who actually had lives. Who weren't who wasn't who wasn't just defined by being somebody's mother or somebody's ex-wife, or, mm-hmm. and I think that's what makes it interesting. Probably you, best not to get Hannah on the subject. All oh, right, you're not a big fan. I'm not a fan. No, I mean, that is the, the biggest. We should probably we should yeah. probably stop it there yeah. because yeah. it would just turn into just a, a, a full blown rant, rant about it. I, yeah, yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to. Yeah. I love a rant. Yeah, Je- that's, oh. that's made a career out of ranting. I've made, <laughs> made a career out of it. Yeah. Well, I say career. I mean, that's <laughs> but also the other thing. I, I mean, the main reason I I didn't know anything about the books. The books have been a massive. She sold 27 million copies or something I originally went to watch Outlander because it was Scottish and it was set around yeah, the Jacobite yeah, uprising yeah, and, is, and then of course I discovered Sam Hewitt and then you lovely. saw <laughs> 
sand hue and make him. <laughs> can I also ask, as someone who is absolutely obsessed with historical accuracy, mm. I mean, how does that work out in Outland? You know, apart from the fact that they've got the Jacobites saying rebellion when they wouldn't, they would have said uprising because they wouldn't have considered it rebellion because they thought they were on the right side of the of the argument. It's actually quite good. And like the reason I, I realised I was going to like it was halfway through episode one, they start speaking Gaelic. Uh, which is unusual. They don't bother subtitling it, and they just have the, which is what the Highlanders would have sp- spoke. And I just thought, oh, this is good. And I, th- I think it's interesting because as somebody who's from Scottish stock, uh, Scottish history isn't taught in England. People didn't really know what went on in the 1740s. They didn't know how the Scots were treated after Culloden. I'd never heard of Culloden yeah. until I watched <laughs> well, yeah. Outlander, so which is really I bad. I thought it was like that stuff that's a bit like porridge, but creamier. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but, but I want to try it. I should try it. <laughs> yeah. But so for me, I thought it was quite good that you saw an, you know, that the British were, were occupying the Highlands, um, and the way they treated the Scots after Culloden, it was it was ethnic cleansing. It was kind of a genocide, and I think it's quite good that because people aren't aware of that historical facts. Yeah. I mean, there's a danger that you kind of romanticise what was a feudal society, which wasn't particularly something I'd be keen on. But it, it gives you this idea that it's... And that's, what I think, what makes it also interesting. It's just, it's, it's never shown on, on TV. But that doesn't really... I mean, that doesn't really kick in until the second series properly, does well, it? The, well, uh, well, you know that the, you've got Blackjack and the occupying English British. Yeah, story. but the, the main... The first series is mainly centred around the relationship between Jamie and... Yeah, but you get this idea of the feudal yeah. society and the yeah. clan chiefs and, oh, yeah. and stuff like that. And there is a danger that you romanticise it. Scottish history has been romanticised since the Walter Scott. So you've got this romantic idea of the high... I mean, Jamie's like in a long line of literary heroes, so, you know, from from uh, Waverley and, and Rob Roy and stuff like that. So it, Scottish history has been romanticised. And in a way, I suppose, fiction fiction has, has changed Scottish history, the perception of Scottish history. So you've got this brave, noble hero fighting for a lost cause against beautiful scenery, and that's how people think of Scotland. You know, she's a historian. The woman who wrote the book is, it was, was originally a historian, so she did her research. Believe it or not, I could talk about history way longer than I could talk about Shagging. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, but, you know that kind of a, the second, se- <laughs> yeah. the second season it was a bit disappointing a for me minutes. because obviously the, the books are so big and they cut all the stuff at the Scottish court in Edinburgh when Charles was in Edinburgh and they cut all that, presumably because it wouldn't have been interested in anybody who wasn't Scottish. But I was personally going, oh, you should have kept that kept that in. I mean, she plays with facts. So there's like a witch scene, which and witch trials were over by the point she read that novel. But if you wrote the novel set, but you know, if you go back 200 years, putting a witch trial... 20 years later than it would have happened, I suppose it's kind of irrelevant, isn't it, really? I've got no idea if it's historically accurate or not. <laughs> Absolutely no Don't, idea. So and I'm happy with that. <laughs> you spent two and a bit series, season, sorry, um, not really sure why you were watching it. Yeah. What, what has won you round? I don't know, the end of series two. Once you start getting away from all the romance stuff, which bored me, and we started getting into some it's proper like fighting. Well, not fighting. It was like the, the, just a really good, na- a really good story. Like the it's very good. There's a lot of plot. There was the plot started to get really interesting. I was like, oh, I actually, I actually care now. Actually, I'm actually interested to find out what happens. Uh, but it did take. <laughs> it took about I don't know how many. It's about episode. It took about twenty eight. hours <laughs> of my life. Which is why we were never very good at keeping it regular. Because Maureen would go, let's record another podcast. And I was like, I haven't watched it. <laughs> I am, it really felt like homework. Yeah. Why did you agree to do it? Because I kept on it. <laughs> For the sake of our friendship. I don't, I don't know, Mick. I don't know. For the sake of our friendship, yeah. It's also an excuse if you listen to it. Half the episode is her taking the piss out of me. So we don't really talk about Anna and Landa. It's just you. Yeah, I think that's probably why the, the podcast works. Is because... Because Maureen is evangelical about it, and I'm just this cynical old bag. <laughs> well, I think I've got one of your hairs on my face, Maureen. 
was like, is that? I was like, oh, please don't let that be attached. <laughs> it wasn't. It's fine. If that was a long one. I don't know what we were doing there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Do you think that Outlander gets a bit mocked because it is for women? Is there is there that element I of think, it's not proper TV because it's not? I think because also it's cross genre, and I think you know the last two episodes when you saw to- Tobias Menzies and Sh- Sh- uh, Sam Hewen, the acting was brilliant, and not, not, I don't think any of them got nominated for awards. And I think people don't take it seriously because it's a, you know, it's, they, it's considered a romantic novel, yeah. kind of sci-fi, and they, yeah, I think you're right. I think Katrina Balfe is an amazing actress, and. Awards don't mean awards don't mean anything. Greatest series of television ever made, series two of the leftovers, not one fucking Emmy Award nomination. Oh, I loved that. That was amazing. amazing. That was amazing. I th- that, let's do a podcast on that my god that was an amazing Wait, season 3 yeah. is finished right of Outlander before you start yeah sorry before we start talking about but the Wire never got the Wire yeah, never the got any Emmy nominations Deadwood never got any Deadwood one of my favourite oh, series of all time Jen and I are going to go and hang out that's amazing there's another pint yeah but you did wonder those last two episodes which you know it must have been so brave to do that what they were doing and it just didn't really get any you know I, I, I know, but I think I I agree with Hannah. Forget nominations, yeah. forget uh, awards. Outlander, the audience is humongous, and yeah. not only is it absolutely enormous, they are rabid. They are oh, yeah, they're, they're, evangel- yeah, yeah. evangelical about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, I, mean, I got because I, I do reviews of, of episodes. I carried on after doing them for for, for um, Standard Issue, and one website they put put the link up, and I they actually took the link down because I got so many hits within two minutes. That my website went down. Which begs the question, Maureen. I've got a really cheap why? website. No, no, not. Well, maybe. But we've been doing this podcast now for about 13 weeks. And our numbers have gone down. Yeah, but we, we do like one tweet and then we wonder why nobody, nobody, li- I mean, we yeah, are but rubbish I mean, I social just, media. We do hashtag Outlander. I mean, if you're an Outlander fan, you'd very easily find our podcast. Yeah, if they happen to be looking at their tweets feed at no. three o'clock on one Wednesday afternoon. No. you search hashtag Outlander. They're, they're, Maureen, you tweet about it 78 times a day. <laughs> <laughs> and retweet it on all of, like, six different uh, Twitter handles right, that you have. Shh, shh, shh. All right, whatever. Tell people that. So, uh, are you an enabler, Jen? Is this your role in it? I think yeah, it is, you are. yeah, no, I think I am. Because I, I mean, her, I'm in danger of being this, this woman and you just lives by herself and watches Outlander on a loop and she goes do that now yeah. <laughs> yeah you're not in danger of it Maureen that's actually happening in real time you do that you watch it all the time well listeners we're going to leave it up to you whether you have been swayed if you I don't, don't already swayed anyone <laughs> outlander you have actually swayed me to listen to your podcast yeah that sounds oh, yeah. great oh yeah, yeah. and how oh, can yeah. we find Joutlander how can you find it on anything <laughs> but you have to put in Maureen and Jen yeah you have to put it on Morning Jen because we originally had a podcast that was just us wittering on about nothing. That didn't do very well, Morning <laughs> either. And then we decided to do Morning and Jen Droughtlander. So but you yeah. can find it under Droughtlander or Morning and Jen. You or can find it on Jen iTunes, Brister, Carfbox, or anything. Yeah. And it's Maybe we'll put it in our. Um, that probably be easier. Out. And my reviews are on MorningYounger.com. And also on Standard Issue if you want to go to season two. Yeah, yeah. I've got nothing for you. Then. And I've got, <laughs> and we've got one about Jamie, which uh, was one of my favourite articles to write about. Why he's the bravest hero of them all, and also why Outlander sex is so good. The, the nookie making love one. Which, oh, you used <laughs> the yeah, word. She fought me. She, fought me. <laughs> she wrestled me. You were very different. No, you were very like this going in. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to be told sometimes, Maureen. You've got to be told. If she really fancies Jamie, then you know she likes me. To, someone to put the foot down occasionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
strong, firm, red feminine, red. Oh, you've not got the red hair, <laughs> and you need a hairy chest. Yeah, That's hairy chest. Thing. I'm mm. wearing a very high neck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll have a look later, Mick. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, you two. Thank you. Thank you. For oh, asking thanks us. for having us. This will be the first pleasure. podcast that people listen to that goes over two hours. Oh, actually, morning. <laughs> you and I on a podcast, people are listening to. I know. Listen first, isn't it? <laughs> This October, in an effort to make me feel spectacularly old, the British Library opened its doors on a history of magic, an exhibition celebrating 20 years of Harry Potter. The appeal of the Harry Potter series has endured spectacularly since Hagrid first dropped Harry on our collective doorsteps a whole 20 years ago, garnering new young fans while somehow also keeping hold of its adult fans. So what's the deal? What exactly is going on and why after 20 years are we still so eager to fall into Harry's world? I'm Fiona Longmuir and today I'll be talking magic, chaos and control freakery. I'd like to start by saying that, you know those weird Potter-obsessed adults I mentioned before? Yeah, I'm one of them. I'm a sort of mature, relatively successful 25-year-old woman and I like a child wizard book. And while I no longer obsessively reread the books, no shade if you do, they are timeless classics, my fascination with magic has really stuck with me. I've never been a religious person, but I will salute every single magpie I come across. When I peel an apple, I find myself throwing the rind over my shoulder to see the initial of the person I'm going to marry, even though it's mysteriously O every single time. I have made a wish on every one of my 25 birthday cakes. And the history of magic exhibition shows that, in this fascination, I'm not alone. It charts a preoccupation with magic that stretches back hundreds of years. And in the early days, this preoccupation makes sense, right? The sun goes dark, and you don't know why. Dark magic. Your crops fail. Dark magic. A woman expresses an opinion. Dark magic. In the good old days, we responded to these grand displays of magic with equally grand displays of magic, usually involving a perfectly innocent woman being burned to death. Thankfully, these days we know more about our world. We know that freak natural occurrences are the result of things like solar winds or climate change and not the result of pissing off a vast all-powerful god. Well, most of us know that. So magic, superstition, witchcraft, they stopped being such a huge part of our lives, but they didn't disappear completely. They hung around in small, sometimes imperceptible ways. And it's these tiny, everyday occurrences of magic that really fascinate me, from positive affirmations to aromatherapy and even to things like lucky underwear. What makes us as adults hang on to our belief in magic? Here's what I think. The world right now is, oh God, how do I put this? Well, it's a total fucking shit show. I mean, we have really screwed it up on a monumental scale. A lot of us, myself included, are terrified. We don't know what's gonna happen next or how to make things better. Sure, we know more about our world than our witch burning ancestors, but we don't necessarily understand it any better. We feel powerless. And humans as a species, we're not so good at that. 
we're not good at dealing with chaos. We need to believe that there's somehow an order to things, that there's something going on that's bigger than us. Otherwise, how are we supposed to get through the day? Magic, at its heart, is about ritual. Even the word ritual is a cult in its roots. And ritual is about control. It's about finding a pattern. It's about the certainty that if you can only follow the right steps, find the right combination, say the right thing, then things will work out. But more important than that, it's about doing something. Believing in magic on any level means believing in your own power, believing that you have the ability to affect change. And right now, that is a fucking brave and essential thing to believe. These are dark and difficult times, and I think that all of us can benefit from a little light and a little magic. If you'd like more everyday magic in your life, interspersed with sweary feminism and pictures of my rabbit and my face, you can follow me on Twitter at escapologistfee. Hi, we're here today with our film reviewer extraordinaire, Yosra Osman. Hello. That's, and by we, I mean Jen and I. Hello. Also people who see things in the cinema. And we're here so Yosra can tell us what the best things she's seen at the cinema this year. What have we missed, Yosra? Well, I'm not sure you have missed all of them, but I am going to talk about some of the films. And, and they're not necessarily the best films, I think, of the year. They're ones that really struck me, and I think everyone should see them because... We're very much in agreement mm-hmm. that the word yeah. best doesn't really mean anything. No. It's no. entirely subjective, so yeah. Yeah, this is very subjective. I might throw in a couple there that you'll think, oh, what is she going on about? But I'm just going to go with it anyway. I'm going to start off with one that I actually forgot came out this year, and I always see it as a 2016 film, but it's basically remained, even though it came out in January, it's remained in my top three up to now, and that is, of course, Moonlight, <gasps> which was... Just breathtakingly beautiful. Um, And everybody knows about it because of that whole fiasco with the Oscars where it was mistakenly announced that La La Land had won, but it wasn't. It was Moonlight. But I hope people actually did go and see it after that um, because, in my opinion, it's one of the best films I've seen this decade, let alone this year. Barry Jenkins is the director. And I remember when I saw it in the cinema, I was with a couple of my really good friends. And I came out and I just said that was like a piece of art. Like it was just so beautiful, it really spoke to me in just terms of the levels of artistry there, but also it really kind of punched me in the gut with the oh. feeling of, of emotion that I was. All yeah. the feels, wasn't yeah, it? It was basically. just all of the feels. I saw it on an aeroplane, which is never the best way no. to watch a film. And obviously, immediately when I got back to this country, I then went and watched it, not on an aeroplane, because I thought there'll be bits cut out of it. Mm. And also, it's a tiny screen. But even so, sitting on an aeroplane watching it, I was almost like Bjork with my hands pushed up against my face. Mm. And this is just so lovely. Mm. And it's the sort of film, I think, you see it and then you think about it afterwards. It's like, which you know it's always made a good impression when you come out of the cinema and you're still thinking about it the next day, mm. like a week later. And I just, every bit of it, I was just so emotionally invested in Mm. and great performances from the entire cast Um, not just um, Mahashala Ali who obviously won the Oscar for it and he was obviously great um, even in his limited screen time I think he was only on the screen for about 10 minutes it wasn't that long was it it was all over with him pretty quickly yeah but the the three spoiler alert sorry Uh, (laughs) 
the three actors that play the main character at different stages of his life also absolutely brilliant. And I think to take a structure like that, to tell his tale in these three sort of segments and keep you involved in each one and keep you engaged throughout is actually quite a tricky thing to do. And it's not always the kind of best structure to use in films. And I think he did it, that Jenkins did it really, really well. I've still got mad love for Moonlight. Yeah. And it's good to see a film about a gay man being embraced by Hollywood, particularly... Gay black man. Do you know what my favourite... This is a spoiler alert in case anyone has it, but like my favourite bit in the whole film is when little Chiron is talking to, and I can't remember the character's name played by... Um, Ali. Yes. Yeah. Well done for saving me there, because I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> the bit where he is with him and he says that other kids at school call him a faggot, mm. and he's like, you know, am I, you know, whatever. The reaction you expect from this dude... And the reaction you get from this day, I was like literally weeping. I was mm. just like, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so, yeah. just really like well done. Naomi Harris was amazing as well. I yeah. Think. Almost unrecognisable, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. She she was absolutely... The entire... I mean, Janelle Monae's in it, and yeah. anything with Janelle Monae involved, I will always support, because I think she is fabulous, and I love her. Um, she but, was really good in... I don't know if... Are you going to go on to mention Hidden Figures? Oh, that's another one. But no, I wasn't. But I did love Hidden yeah, Figures as well. Yeah, she was really great in Hidden yeah. Figures. Really great. She's she's brilliant. Everybody involved in that film, I just want to hug. I'm not sure if it's my number one, but it's in my top three now. And I just think, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's what are you fucking playing? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. What else is on your list? Second film I think I'm going to mention, um, again, came out more towards the beginning of the year, but was such good fun. Um, Get Out by Jordan Peele with Daniel Kaluuya in, um, kind of a horror, it's a horror film, but it's also a bit of a comedy, and there's a lot of controversy about it being nominated in the comedy character, uh, comedy section at the Golden Globes, but we won't talk about that. Anyway, this is also in my top ten, I think, because I'm not usually a fan of horror, and I went to see this, and I just loved it. I just found it such a thrilling experience, and yet there was so much important subject matter behind it as well um have you seen it jen i have not no i'd I'd really recommend it it's the sort of it's it's i think it's one of those films that you should really see in the cinema because it's kind of like an experience to go i mean you can watch it at home because it's not in cinemas anymore but it i think i felt lucky being able to see it in the cinema because it was just like I was with people I got on really well with and we were laughing, we were jumping and, and afterwards, you know, we talked about it for hours and hours on end because I just thought it there was so much behind it that was so clever. I mean, it was a bit of a sleeper hit, wasn't it? It, it? Sort of, it came out of nowhere and my brother rang me and said, I have seen a great film, you need to watch this film. I, th- I thought it was terrific. Yeah, and um, again, great performances and I think it, it what it what it does really well is it works on the sort of entertaining horror slash comedy level but it's also it's also just as important as a piece of social commentary especially in the US at this time um, with everything that's going on over there it just came out at the right time I think I I think any other time it would still have been a really good film to go and see but with everything going on it just seems particularly important to go and see it so I love that one yeah also has Stephen Root in it which 
makes any film at least 25% better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take, Take that on board. Yeah. Okay, so I mentioned two. So another one, which I'm not sure many people will have seen, but it's a British film. Um, it's called God's Own Country. I don't know if either of you two Ooh. have seen I do know, that one. actually, that you suggested it on the list of things to watch in the summer and I've singly failed to take your advice. No is, uh, problem. I will talk about it now and I'm sure it will be on one of the various streaming services at some point. It's a film by a guy called Francis Lee. I don't know how many films he's done in the past, but I was lucky to go to a Q&A with him and the two lead actors. And it's, it's a film, it's set in Yorkshire... It's about um, a young man who, he's a farmer. His dad is getting iller and iller by the second and, you know, he's having to take up most of the duties. So they decide to bring in uh, a Romanian immigrant to come and help on the farm. And uh, what happens is it, it kind of becomes a bit of a love story between the the, the young farmer who's on the, fo- on the farm anyway and this Romanian that comes along. Um, to help out and it was just really beautifully done it was such an intimate but exquisite portrait of of a a romance and it doesn't even matter that it was a gay romance that wasn't what I was thinking when I was watching it I didn't you know didn't care it was just as a as a as a as an intimate portrait it was beautifully done it's really well filmed um you've got some really nice views of sort of the Yorkshire moors and it was one that again just kind of left me a bit breathless when I came out the cinema um, and and it just I feel like I have to mention that one because I feel like not a lot of people will have seen it and I feel like lots of people do need to see it because it was beautiful and you know supporting British filmmakers as always question I'm not answering that Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. Now, the noises you potentially can hear in the background this week are the tumble dryer, the washing machine, and the dishwasher, because I put all the buggers on at once. Oh, also, um, well, the oven's on, but you won't be able to hear that. But the timer might go off because I've got a pie in the oven. That's not a euphemism, but to be fair, when I say I've got a bun in the oven... That's not a euphemism either. The question I'm going to answer this week is from Peter Anderson. Thanks, Peter, for your question. This was on Twitter. And Peter's question is, why are my itchy parts itchy? Now, either you've been deliberately vague because your itchy parts are your genitals, or maybe there's just too many to list. And even with the extended now 280 characters on Twitter, maybe there wasn't enough space. Now, I'll tell you where I get itchy on me. (laughs) Oh, brace yourselves, kids. If I don't wash my hair every day, my hair gets what we we would call nitty rather than itchy. So where you feel like you, it's, you haven't really gotten it. It just feels kind of icky and like, oh, I wish I'd wash my hair today. It's very rare I don't wash my hair, but I have, I suppose, stinky days sometimes where I don't have to go anywhere apart from walk the dog. And if somebody approaches you and smells a smell when you're walking a dog, you just blame the dog. Sorry, dogs. I don't know if you're listening, dogs, but it is all your fault. So where else gets itchy? I guess anywhere where I shave and hair starts coming in. That's a lot of places these days, guys. I'm 42. There's so many places I have to shave now. Sometimes I think I might just bath in, like, AMAC and just see if, if that would work. I also get itchy. I get under boob itchy sometimes. But I tell you, this is a good tip. I, I didn't have time to, like go to a chemist and talk to somebody and I thought what do I need I just need something really quickly and I googled how to solve underboob itching and somebody on the internet 
and they are not a doctor and I am not a doctor. So if you need to see a doctor, see a doctor, guys. But they suggested athlete's foot cream because it's all fungus, isn't it? And some, which I now call athlete's boob cream. And oh, pie's counting down. It's exciting. It's like 24. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, back to boobs. Anyway, and the athlete's boob cream really works for me. Might not work for you. Works for me. But uh, Peter, I don't know if you've got boobs. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have. If you're itchy in your genital area, that might be like a thrush situation. In which case, go to your doctor, go to your chemist, ask for something to do with thrush and they'll give you the oral tablet is good. Bear in mind, you can't get it in America without a prescription. Don't ask me how I know that. Let's move on. And feet. I have have had itchy feet in the past, but they're not really itchy so much as just before I go to bed, I get kind of restless legs and they kind of dance around, which, I mean, other people find entertaining, but I find quite uncomfortable, so I just go to bed. Um, I hope that's helped. I mean, I would suggest a trip to the pharmacy anyway, um, Peter, to sort out your itchy situation, but I hope, I hope at least you've got, you know, something from this. <laughs> Even if the fact, just the fact that I make pies sometimes really late at night. Uh, thanks, guys. Have a lovely week. Bye-bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard Issue for all women. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly sprint finish in the Omnium... In the Omnium... It's quite hard to say of women's sports. I don't know if you do. You must sprint finish in an omnium. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Normally, you deliver bad news in what they call a shit sandwich. So, for example, if I were conducting Martin Glenn's end of year appraisal, I might say, Martin, you're ever so good at going on the telly and saying words that sound like you genuinely care, but you are quite bad at actually delivering as if you care. Nice suit, by the way. M&S. This week is kind of like a shit on toast, I suppose, but maybe with a double base of bread. So, like, more good stuff, but a little dry could do with some butter. Anyway, let's start with the shit, but a predictable shit. So, sort of like you ate that undercooked sausage roll from Liverpool Street Station, so, you know, what did you expect, really? A salary survey has found that the gender pay gap in football is worse than in politics, medicine and space. Now, I'm not sure how many astronauts were surveyed, but whatever, it sounds pretty bad, right? Well, as I said, it's not really surprising news, given that women's football in the UK is making up for a 50-year time lag behind men's football, what with that pesky FA ban spanning from 1921, at which point they were drawing crowds of up to 60,000, to 1971, yeah. What is a little more surprising is this stat, and everyone does love a stat. Neymar, Brazilian chap, about yay high, plays for Paris Saint-Germain, was literally bought by the Qatari royal family, and presents as a bit of a twit, if we're honest. Anyway, he earns the same amount as the combined salary of 1,693 female footballers. It's a lot, isn't it? There have been a few moves by clubs to address the balance, for example, by the dudes in the Norway international team giving up some of their cash to their female counterparts so they can be paid equally, by Lewis FC, who invest the same amount of cash in their male and female teams. But, you know, Juan Mata can't convince any of his teammates at Manchester United to commit a measly 1% of their salaries to actual literal charity, so 
you know, I'd say the scope for change is limited. Anyway, with the new women's league structure on the horizon, let's hope to see a real serious commitment to making women's football financially sustainable. While we're on the subject of football, worth saying that uh, we've had a couple of weeks off because you had a gig cast last week. Worth saying that in that time, the uh, England women's team had a lovely time in the World Cup qualifiers, beating Bosnia-Herzegovina 4-0 and Kazakhstan by 5-0. But all eyes were on those fuckers with the handsome paychecks this week as the poster for the Russia World Cup due to take place next year and the groups for said World Cup were revealed. The poster was sort of, it's kind of like a vintage-inspired creation that looked, I'm going to say, not dissimilar to some 1940s Russian propaganda artwork. And sometimes I do think Putin is laughing at us all. Over in the groups, England, the only home nation to qualify, drew Belgium, Panama and Tunisia. So, you know, could be worse. Mind you, Belgium are pretty tasty these days. And I'm sure we can find a way to cock it right up anyway. England hero Alan Shearer commented that England wouldn't win, which made me hate him a bit, just for telling the truth. Um, It's cruel. It's really cruel, supporting England, always with the audacity of hope, you motherfuckers. Anyway, the good news, yeah? I did promise it, didn't I? The BBC's Sports Personality of the Year candidates were announced last week, and some of them were birds. Four, mates. Four. That's 25%. So, I mean, it is less than 50%, admittedly, which does suck a bit, but as we know, we can't have it all. Spotty, that's what you call it, if you're, uh, I don't know, hashtagging it, or just, I don't know, you like an acronym, sort of reminds me of, I don't know, like a really glorified Harwich and Parkston Sunday Shrimpers end-of-year bash. Like, they're really trying to make an event out of it. You know, you can buy tickets to go to it. Presumably that funding goes back into the BBC because the Tories certainly don't want to fund it. And the festivities will be underpinned by some sort of underwhelming musical accompaniment. But still, I'll be watching and I'll still enjoy it, to be fair. Love's an award ceremony. Those birds are short... This is hard to say as well. Short track speed skater Elise Christie, who recently won Time Sportswoman of the Year, tennis player Joe Conter... Player of the match in England Cricket's World Cup final this year, Anya Shrubsole. I think that's how you say it. Shrub, Shrubsole? Shrubsole? Who knows? And four times World Taekwondo champion, Bianca Walkden. Personally, I would have liked to see track cyclist Katie Archibald on that list as well. She's had a cracking year, including titles at the National Criterion Championships, National Track Championships, European Track Championships and the World Cup, among others, with another win on Friday. So a massive whoop whoop to her. Another quick round of applause for jockey Josephine Gordon, who became the first woman in the history of British racing to ride 101 winners in a year at the end of November. So that is lovely stuff. As ever... If you've got any thoughts on any of this, perhaps you've got a suggestion for an absent spotty nomination or you just want to show women's sport some love, give me a shout. I'm on Twitter, at InspiraGen, and I would love to hear from you. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy. What Disney did you did this week? This week, I watched 1953's Peter Pan, which is obviously based on the characters of J.M. Barry, but does veer from the story quite a lot. It's one of those ones where I thought I'd seen it before, but now 
I've actually seen it. I don't think I had seen it. I think because, like, obviously I'd read Peter Pan and Wendy, and I actually didn't know the songs because, as we've discussed before, somebody bought me a Best of Disney album when I was proper small. Have you guys seen it? I've seen it loads, but when I was a kid, and I think since then it's probably got muddled with all the other Peter Pan variations that have been going around. Jen? Similarly, I've seen it as a child, and um, also I once saw a panto, uh, I think in Greenwich, and Lulu was Peter Pan. So, yeah. Did it make you want to shout? I don't remember her doing that, which is weird, because she has dined out on that, like, literally for... All of time, but yeah, I lost my. All pantomimes make you want to shout. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like it, Dunleavy? Not one little bit. I mean, I'd heard reports that it was racist. Oh, there is the racism. And it is. Uh-huh. And what I'd heard less about was how seriously gobsmackingly sexist oh, it is. Oh, it's sexist. And also how uncomfortably sexualized Pan is. No, really. <laughs> was he like eleven? Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Shall I do a little summary of the little summary of the mm. plot? Hannah, could you do a little summary of the plot before we start? Okay. Please? So the darling children—that's their name rather than their nature. The, the best thing is that Blackadder clearly mm. saw a trick there. They live at home with their glamorous mum and their much less attractive father, and a dog called Nanny who looks after them. Because why not get a dog yeah. to look after your children? Or what a coinkydink! <laughs> All the kids are obsessed by the legend of Peter Pan, especially Wendy, who we are told is a child, but I actually struggle to believe isn't just a really small 30-year-old. Anyway, there's a bit of this family brouhaha, and Mr. Darling decides Wendy can have her own bedroom, and Wendy completely loses her shit because, and I can tell you this from personal experience, no young woman wants her space to call her own when she can constantly pick up her younger brother's shit. Wait a minute, it's, Wendy's not happy about this decision. Wendy's not happy no. about this decision. She wants to keep sleeping with the, in, in the vicinity in, of In the brothers. shit tip that is her brother's bedroom, yeah. Because why wouldn't you? Exactly. Anyway, the darlings are about to go out, Mr and Mrs Darling, mm-hmm. are about to go out to some fancy pants dinner. So they leave the kids at home alone. Now, to be fair to Mrs Darling, she does actually say something as they trip merrily out of the door about how they might not be entirely safe because Nanny the dog has been banished to the garden for her role in the earlier debacle. Although, make your own mind up about whether children are safer alone or with a dog balancing a tray of hot beverages on her head. I'd like a dog with hot beverages, please. (laughs) I can't help but think that's going to end really badly. Anyway, into this late-night disaster waiting to happen comes Peter Pan, an eternal child, and Tinkerbell... A fairy, and together via the medium of you can fly, you can fly, they go off to Neverland, an island that is actually less welcoming than that one from Battle Royale. <laughs> well, when you say you, they go off together, do you mean them and the darlings? Yes, them and the darlings. Isn't there something about a shadow being trapped in a drawer? There is. It's tedious. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did I just sum it up really well? Yeah. Okay. Peter, in case you're wondering, wants Wendy to go to Neverland so that she can be the mother. To all the lost boys. What a dream come true, right? For any young girl. So this seems as good a place as any to stop and talk about how sexist this film is. On a scale of one to current affairs, (laughs) how sexist is this film? Well, from this point on, from the point that Wendy arrives in Neverland, she does not encounter a single female character 
who is anything other than a total bitch to her. Tinkerbell tries to kill her a few times. Fair enough. The mermaids taunt her and, like, splash her so she's soaking wet. Peter's well sexy. Tiger Lily snubs her. And the squaw... Racist. We'll be circling back to that later. But the squaw won't let her enjoy the peace party because she makes her perpetually go and fetch wood. Which essentially puts into young girls' minds who are viewing this that women are in direct competition with other women for a man's attention. That's mm. what this film is. Yeah. What's your point, Hannah? <laughs> well, quite. But even worse, that this then feeds into this idea, this oddly sexualized view of what are essentially children and also mythical creatures. The mermaids, for example, they are all over Peter like a rash. And they mock Wendy because she's wearing a nightdress, despite the fact that they are basically naked. And you can't help but feel that what's actually happening is Wendy's actually being called out for being overdressed. And they're not the only ones who are all over Peter. Tiger Lily is, Tinkerbell is. And it's just so weird because, like, how old is Peter? 11, 12? Well, well, well he's it, prepubescent, right? Well, well, Barry describes him as still having his milk teeth. And I think he's got to be older than that. But he's got to be. He's got to be prepubescent because there will be literally no point in perpetual childhood if it comes after the pubes come in. That would just be torment to trap children in a... I don't know, maybe he was into that. Yeah. Just Or just like his voice going up and down. No, no kid's into that. That's, that's horrible. I meant Barry more than oh, right, Peter. Peter. Probably I won't say that. Disney plays Peter Pan as if he's like a heartthrob. I which do, is just really weird. I do remember, apart from Lulu, um, I do sort of remember the idea being that Peter Pan was kind of like a hot piece of ass for yeah. like a for young, an eleven-year-old boy, a young kid watching this film. Robin Hood, who's clearly a fox yeah. <laughs> in all of them, but also a grown-up. Yeah, but a grown-up fox. Mm. If I'm going to fancy an animal, he has to be over <laughs> the be, age of consent. It's got to be a grown fox. Essential to this whole sort of idea that he is irresistible is well, he's also an arsehole. Yeah. Well, it, to be fair, he is an arsehole because what Jay and Barry wanted to create was a character who showed ultimately the perpetual selfishness of childhood. I have dated men who have had less about them than Peter Pan, and I will continue to date those men, no well, matter more what my for friends you. say. Well, no, I don't mean to, but there's a lot of them about me. And I think like something like Peter Pan, and this sounds really fucking glib, but that myth that men are so that they do not need to grow up comes from stuff like Peter Pan because Peter Pan when I worked in the theatre was considered a boys pantomime they would have boys and girls pantomimes and Peter Pan is like one for the boys because mm. the boys are hero and there's sword fights and there's pirates and there's women doing their bidding you know what more could a boy want but also I do think that the whole concept of it and everything you've just said does play into we keep talking about I keep fucking banging on about this a lot at the moment and we're all banging on about it a bit and, and quite rightly so this does kind of play into this whole toxic masculinity thing. Like this whole, you'll be looked after by like a girl who's the same age as you, basically, yeah, or younger, but, but she'll be responsible. Well, well absolutely, because like, I think central to this, this weirdness, it's like the absolute clusterfuck of gender stereotypes mm. that is Tinkerbell, who is actually probably the biggest arsehole I've yet to encounter She's in a Disney film. Awful. She tries awful. to kill someone, yet is still seen as someone to look up to. Urban legend will tell you Tinkerbell is based on Marilyn Monroe. 
But she's not, you know, clues in the word urban legend. But I can see why that story got traction because, you know, Tinkerbell's pretty curvy and the comedy she has is quite slapstick. And she's presented in the way that Marilyn Monroe was often presented. And I don't mean this, that it was Marilyn Monroe presenting herself this way. It was the way that she was marketed to you. This kind of half virgin, half whore. Mm. You know, the idea that she's this naive little thing that's really easy to manipulate, but really what she's just dying for is a good seeing to. (laughs) And that's kind of where Tinkerbell sits. And it's clearly something that's got no place in a film for kids, particularly when... The contrast to her, the opposite to her, is Wendy, who is off singing to the children about how wonderful mummies are, mm. which, to be fair, did bring a tear to my eye, largely because I was stabbing myself in the leg with a fork. I thought it was because you really liked ancient Egypt. <laughs> yeah. You do love a mummy. You love you love history. Yeah, there's no history in this. Okay. And, you know, and that's just that's just the sexism problems with it, because we haven't even got to... The racism problems, which, as you know, I talked about the way Disney and Hollywood as a whole treats Native Americans in the piece that we did about Pocahontas. And my thoughts haven't changed anything since then, obviously. I mean, all I really have to add here is that Disney's Peter Pan can go fuck itself with really something really unpleasant, like <laughs> Donald Trump's gnarly orange cock. Or a feathery headdress that it stole from the Native Americans. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I can't believe you mentioned Donald Trump's gnarly yeah. orange cock. We were going to say tiny hands. No. I mean, same size, yeah. big difference. In summary, Hannah, are we going to score this? Or are we scoring it? Let's yeah, I am, it. I am going to give it a score. I was going to give it nothing, but there's actually one bit that really, really made me laugh. In fact, it's one of those bits that I thought oh, I quite miss me dad because it's the sort of thing that really made him laugh. And of course, I'm not sure it's deliberate, <laughs> but as Anyone who's ever fallen over in front of me knows it doesn't have to be deliberate to make me piss my pants. So there's a bit where Hook is trying to force the kids to become pirates. Oh, wait a minute. This is the first time you've mentioned Hook, yeah. by the yeah. way. Well, there's we all know that. It's Hook, there's a crocodile. We Hook. know this. Yeah. Um, smile at him. So he's trying to force the kids to become pirates and they refuse. So he says that they have to walk the plank. And Wendy goes first to walk the plank and she turns to her brother, the one that's immediately the younger than her. I believe he's called Michael. He's the one with the top hat and the glasses. Because that's what all children in London used to wear. And she tells him that he has to be brave and strong. (laughs) Be brave as you face your impending death. And he says, I shall strive to, Wendy. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me piss my drawers for about 20 minutes. And it made me want to ring my dad in the afterlife and go, I shall strive to, Wendy. So on the basis of that, Peter Pan gets one. One what? One, this film doesn't deserve something funny in its scoring system, out of five. Oh, OK. Ooh, Fair enough. Burn, harsh. Harsh burn. criticism. That's a bit... Is that the lowest score yet? No, Pokemon's no. got nothing. Did we actually give a nothing? We, get, we sorry, gave I'm a nothing. Wait, did you actually? Pocahontas give a got nothing, and nothing um, out of wind machines. And Snow White got one out of seven. Oh yeah, so, I suppose. So like technically, maths. that's that's lower. Stop bringing maths into it, don't I? I know. Well, thanks very much. Let's all never grow up. That's all from this week's Standard Issue Podzine. I'm sitting perilously close to my window, and if you know much about this Podzine, it's that I live on a very noisy road. So if you hear cars. Sorry, I'm trying to get this done quickly before EastEnders because the tale of James Wilmot Brown's 
revenge via the medium of gentrification is like pretty unmissable stuff thanks for joining us uh, if you liked the sound of myself and Hannah Dunleavy having a chat with Yosva Osman about her films of the year then well you're in for a real treat because on Sunday we'll be doing the whole shebang as a Sunday chops next week come back to us and join us as we talk about the albums of the year with our resident music expert Liz Buckley and indeed the gift of giving with comedy writer Sarah Morgan plus you know all the other stuff that you like we hope if you keep coming back to us presumably you do in fact that is a good point do you like us do you like us do you love us if you do We'd really like it if you told a mate about us so that they could have joy in their ears also. You know, you can't keep it all for yourself, guys. So, yeah, please do give us a little share on the old social media or just, you know, in polite conversation if you want. Or come and see us with your eyes. Uh, We do shows every month in London. The next one in a couple of weeks is sold out. And January is probably pretty close to being sold out, if not already. February is going to be a corker. We've got Bridget Christie, Izzy Sutty and Rasheen Connerty. But before that, you asked and we gave, delivered, I don't know, whatever. You asked for gigs outside of London. We've got a gig outside London. It's not our first, to be fair. But anyway, bygones. Uh, It's in Cambridge on January the 19th. And so far, you can expect to see Mickey, Hannah or rather Mickey and Hannah, chatting to comedian and star of Silent Witness, Liz Carr, and poet, author, brilliant human, Holly McNish. So that will also be tremendous, we're sure. That's basically it. All that I really need to say is, stay frosty, champs. Standard issue for all women.